I'm Steve Fisher. Like many of us, Don Lessam had a fondness for dinosaurs as a child. Unlike many, he made a career out of it, writing 40 books for kids, hosting and writing TV documentaries, advising Steven Spielberg on the original Jurassic Park movie, and much more. Now, as Dino Don, he produces life-size animatronic dinosaur figures for exhibit. You could even buy one for your garden. Dino Don is my guest on Life Slices. Welcome, Don Lessam, to the podcast. I got to ask you a really, I hope, simple question. Who is Dino Don Lessam? That's not simple at all. Well, some people think I'm simple. Personally, I'm a, a, a neurotic Jewish guy pushing 70. Professionally, I'm, I'm a dinosaur expert of sorts. I'm really a middleman, like a poor, poor man's David Attenborough for dinosaurs. So I do pretty much everything that could possibly be done with them that's legal. I uh, excavate them, put them back together again. Some of the biggest ones in the world from Argentina. I write a lot of books, 53 of them now, hosted in Nova. And now uh, run a robotics company after having done exhibits with skeletons for many years in museums. And now I do a robotics thing of giant robots, the first full-size accurate ones in the world at the Seattle Zoo and zoos all over the country. I guess we have now 300 robots all over Europe and North America, and I don't know what to do with them, especially in the wintertime. So if you want them in your house... You're welcome to them. Can they fit in a house? It depends on the size of your house. If you're Bill Gates, no problem. What is it about dinosaurs that fascinates us? You know what? They, they, I'm glad you asked that question because it's a terrible question. And everyone asks it. You know what the answer is? The answer is, what's the matter with you that you don't realize how fantastic they are? They are, for one, the biggest dinosaurs are 10 times bigger than anything that ever lived. So an animal the size of a house, how can that not be amazing? The problem with us as grown-ups, which is very sad, is that we lose that sense of wonder. We can't put ourselves in that world. We can't imagine what it's like to see these fantastic animals anymore. If you're five years old, you have no problem. And that's why it's not a genetic defect for five-year-olds. They realize that this is the most amazing thing that ever happened in nature. Well, I do. I, I love dinosaurs as a kid. I, I, they're especially as a child, they are, they are fascinating. And I've always loved dinosaurs. When, when I saw Jurassic Park, it was that sense of wonder that, oh, I wish this was, was real. Yes. So, okay, you're forgiven. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what sparked your particular interest in dinosaurs? I mean, a lot of us play with with the dinosaur figures, and we're fascinated by them, but we don't necessarily go into business with them. <laughs> That's right. You are as obsessed. But, you know, I'm not actually a lifelong dinosaur nerd. I was one from three to eight, and I used to give tours at the American Museum of Natural History when I was five in New York. Nobody asked me to, but I was just a motormouth kid. I was the reporter at the Boston Globe. I actually, in my adult life, became quite interested in animal behavior. My degree, my science background is in gorillas. But I, uh, I realized that doing the research is incredibly difficult and boring. You have to record every five minutes, gorilla scratches his butt, gorilla scratches his butt. I'd much rather interview the people who did all that hard work. I have some ability to communicate what scientists have so much trouble doing, which is speak English. 
So I thought, okay, this is my niche. And I became a reporter at the Boston Globe. And the Sunday paper editor said one day, you know, I, I see stories about these crazy dinosaur scientists. Why don't you go out and meet them? In those days, newspapers had money. And so they sent me out to meet two of the more famous guys of that time. And I thought, whoa, this is way better than sitting at the desk in the newspaper. It wasn't so much the animals then. It was the characters. It was being out in the badlands in these spectacular locales with these people who could read a landscape that you can't see anymore. And then you're on the scavenger hunt and there's a jigsaw puzzle out there, pieces missing, but you can find fantastic things. and be the first person who ever saw something that ruled the earth. So put all that together and there's something special about it. You know, I love a lot of dead things, but people you know, have a particular fascination with dinosaurs. So I could spend my life, I think, looking at other uh, fossils. But, uh, you know, I, it's like, um, you know how, I don't want to compare myself, but, but uh, like Conan Doyle tried to stop doing Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And no one would leave him alone. I stopped doing dinosaurs a few years ago because I'm very interested in Genghis Khan and some other things that I do exhibits and books about. But everybody was like, where are your dinosaurs? So... I can't get away. I can't escape them. Just have to ask, side note, I grew up in New York, too, and and Uh I have had a lifelong love of gorillas and dinosaurs. The gorillas were sparked by seeing King Kong on the Million Dollar Movie about 12 times in one week. I did exactly that, you know, but my reason, I hate to admit it, but I was about eight or nine, and I was convinced that at one point, Fay Ray's bikini top had slipped. And so I kept watching the movie, hoping to see a little extra of Fay Ray. <laughs> For everyone else who didn't watch Million Dollar Movie, Channel 9, WOR, played the same movie over and over and over again until you gave in. I don't know what they wanted from you. So, yes, I have King Kong memorized, and I loved it, yeah. What got gorillas going for me, though, was uh, uh, there was a book by a guy named George Schaller, who was one of the early animal behaviorists who actually went out in the field. So long before Diana Fossey the woman who was murdered in Mm -hmm. in Gorillas in the Mist. But then I was actually, after she died, I was going to write her authorized biography from her family. And I got sort of like a quickie bio came out from Farley Moet, the guy who did uh, Never Cry Wolf. And so I couldn't write the definitive book, which I think in the end was a relief because she was such a pill. It was like murder on the Orient Express. They never figured out who wanted to kill her because so many people wanted her dead. So I think it was a blessing, but I was I was about 25 then, and it was my big break. And I called him up, and I said, Mr. Moat, you, you ruined my life here. And, and he said, oh, well, what do you got? I said, well, I got a bunch of letters and stuff. He said, well, send me the letters. I'll give you a 1000 bucks." So I, I thought that was very nice. And uh, in retrospect, he got me off the hook. Now, you don't just recreate dinosaurs, but you actually dig them up. Which came first, the digging up? I think you said... That was before you actually started creating them. Yeah, I was digging them up. I, you know, I decided I had a fellowship from MIT for mid-career journalists, so I didn't really have to work very hard at the paper. So I decided to go to every dinosaur dig in the world. There are not that many, probably 35 going on every year. And then I, I wrote a big book for adults on the subject, and I realized that uh, nobody was going to read it. So I decided that I ought to be writing books for kids who really did. The other thing I realized was that these people had no money to do what they wanted to do. And yet huge amounts of dollars, including Jurassic Park money, was being made off 
really the research that they do. We wouldn't have any idea what these things look like if it weren't for these scientists. And dinosaurs have no agent. They get no royalties. So I started a nonprofit. Along those lines, I wanted to see if I could fund research myself. So there are a lot of countries where they have great dinosaurs and no money. Argentina, for whatever reason, has giant dinosaurs. It must be all the meat and the cigarettes, something there. And it's very inexpensive to fund a dig. So I met, I went to one of these conferences. I used to go to all the dinosaur conferences. It was uh, all the paleontologists would meet every year. It's kind of like what I did with my summer vacation. Dinosaurs I found, and the young one, paleontologists who don't get a slot to give a speech have to do a poster session. So there's a whole big room full of these posters. And I went up to one of them and I saw that the guy had a giant bone, a, a femur, a drumstick. And I said, what, you know, this is the biggest meat eating, because meat eaters look different. This is the biggest meat eating dinosaur in the world. This is bigger than T-Rex. And he said, yeah, so what? I said, well, this is a big deal. He said, well, you know, it's probably the rest of the animals in there, but, you know, I just don't have the money. I said, how much? He said, $6,000. I said, well, I can find $6,000. Actually, I didn't have $6,000. A friend of Steven Spielberg, whose son was in the same kindergarten class as Spielberg's kid, was doing CD-ROMs about dinosaurs. And so I knew the guy. And I said, I'll, we'll do a little promotion for your company if you give me 6000 bucks." And that's how I started digging up what was the biggest dinosaur in the world. And my daughter, who was then 12, actually found the biggest bone ever found. It's the backbone of this animal. Like if you go reach around and feel your neck, you got a, a bone the size of a quarter because we're old guys. On a kid, it's a dime size. On an Argentinosaurus, it's two tons and it's six feet wide and six feet high. So my daughter found it and she was so excited. We went to the scientist and he said, God damn it. Because he already had one looked exactly the same, but you're obligated then to dig it up. So I said, what are we going to do now? He said, well, I'm going to the bar. So it wasn't the reaction I wanted, but to answer in the most long-winded way your question, that's how I got into the whole business of sponsoring excavations. The bones never leave the country, which is important. And we make casts, molds first, and then casts. And then we make it a metal armature, put it all together, and send a skeleton somewhere else. These Argentinosaurus skeletons are now all over the world. I guess the closest one is Atlanta in the United States. How do we know where to dig? We don't. Um, that's, that's the problem. So in the end, we needed a space that's open in what was formerly land in the time of dinosaurs. That means from 220 to 65 million years ago, it was land then because dinosaurs lived only on land. Then it's got to get covered over right away, the bones, so that they don't turn to dust. Then it's got to get pushed up to the surface. Then erosion, wind or whatever, has got to wipe the slate clean enough that you see a little piece of bone sticking out. If it's a lot of bone, it will turn to dust very quickly. And then you've got to see that that little piece of bone is attached to something bigger that's under the ground. The odds are ridiculously low when you put all that together. So it, it turns out that most dinosaurs are found by people just walking around. Eight out of 10, actually, are not found by scientists. If somebody finds something interesting, they bring it to the museum. Most of the time, the scientist says, well, this is just a lump of clay and it looks like a dinosaur. For instance, in Montana, eastern Montana, where there's nobody there, a woman was out fishing with her kids. She found a little bone. She knew enough to think that this is, this is weird. And it was heavy enough to think it's a fossil. She drove it 200 miles to the nearest museum. And the scientist there, who's a guy of few words, who's the model for the character in Jurassic Park, said, 
that's the first wrist bone of a T-Rex that anybody has ever found. So he brought, he brought 10 people back there. They started digging around and they found in the hillside beneath it, 80% of a dinosaur. So those are the sort of the, the good ending stories. Yeah, there's no, there's no way whatsoever to know. So you try to get to the area in which the bones, the, the rocks are of that age. And there's a lot of ways to tell how old the rocks are. And then you go to these exposures, like a Badland cliffside, you know, and there there's layers of time. And you're looking down the side of it, and maybe a bone is sticking out the side of the, of the escarpment. That's about as good as it gets. The number of stories of accidents of finding dinosaurs, I'll tell you just two because they're, they're pretty cool. One was a, a friend of mine who's a scientist was taking pictures from the top of a cliff, and he dropped his camera case, and it rolled down the hill, finally came to a stop on the side of you know one of these promontories. And he, he scrambled down there and he saw that it had come to rest on top of the head of a T-Rex. So, so that's, that's what stopped him. And the most famous story is Sue, the T-Rex that went, went to jail, the most complete T-Rex I ever found. Well, it's named Sue because the woman who found it is named Sue. The story that's told to kids for reasons that will soon become obvious is that she was walking around prospecting and saw this beautiful head. What really happened was she was around with her boyfriend and he and the rest of the guys were digging up some duckbilled dinosaurs and she wanted a little privacy to pee. She went off and she peed and then she looked down and she had exposed the dinosaur head. So that's one way to prospect. <laughs> Just go pee everywhere and see what comes up. <laughs> that's right. You have to drink a lot. <laughs> Which gets considerably more difficult the, the older you get, <laughs> unless it's in the middle of the night. So you had a dinosaur named after you. Tell us about that. It was a very nice surprise. I ended up, first of all, raising about $3 million for research because, and this is relevant to the naming, at the end of Jurassic Park, for which I, in quotes, consulted, but every time I would say something, they would say, we already built it, so could you shut up? So I said, okay, Mr. Spielberg, Steve, baby, I want all the sets and props out of this movie. You're done with them. I'm going to make an exhibit about what's wrong with this movie, which is a lot. And he said, yeah. I said, well, I'm gonna, we're going to give all the money to research. And he's a very charitably minded guy, as is Michael Crichton, who was my friend. I made this exhibit and it toured around in the museum in New York and, I don't know, 30 others for years. It was hugely successful. And the royalties, we told Universal Studios that owned the rights, we're going to give you a 20% royalty. It's double what you get for your toys and things. And they said, great. And I said, and then you're going to give it away and get a tax deduction. And they said, oh, not so great. And, and then they said, why should we do what you tell us? And I said, you don't, but Spielberg says it's okay. And they said, oh, okay. So they did it. And so we raised a lot of money and a scientist in Argentina saw that I was giving away all this money. Well, it was the nonprofit, not me personally, but he thought, oh, this guy is rich. So I'll name a dinosaur after him. And then he'll, you know, shower me with money. He found a particularly dumb dinosaur and named it Lessomsaurus. And then found out that I didn't have any money. So I think if he could take it back, it would probably be named like Schwarzosaurus or something. But. Since we don't have any video of real dinosaurs, and we certainly don't have eyewitnesses, how do we know how they moved and behaved? Okay, well, first of all, it's a trick question because we do. Birds are dinosaurs. You're eating dinosaurs every day. You go and get a McNugget. Dinosaurs are not extinct. But as for the ones that you and I are thinking about, and they're gone... 
if you want to recreate them, you have a, a bunch of clues, some of which we never thought we'd have. So there are little microscopic cells that retain color, particularly sort of iridescence. And so we know that some dinosaurs, we thought we would never know what color they are, but particularly the ones that had feathers preserve these cells. And so we know that some feathered dinosaurs were orangish and brown and had stripes. So that's one element. You know, you don't save the flesh because that sort of dries out in fossilization, but your muscles leave a dent in your bones. So Arnold Schwarzenegger has much bigger dents than you and I, has much bigger muscles. So we have a good idea what the dinosaur, what Schwarzeneggersaurus look like because of the dents in them. And then of course the skeletons tell us a lot. You add all that up and you get a pretty good idea of how dinosaurs moved, behaved, and looked. You know, all questions we thought we would never answer, but I think we're a lot closer than we used to think. Well, I know now when when you watch something like Jurassic Park and you see the T-Rex running after people, I recently saw an article that somebody theorized that they didn't move that fast. Oh, no, they didn't. Let's be pretty sure about that. First of all, as a matter of common sense, they were chasing animals that were very slow, triceratops and duckbill dinosaurs. You know, in life, you only need to be faster than the thing you're going to eat. You don't have to be a lot faster. And these are, T-Rex is a seven to 10 ton animal. We have footprints from some dinosaurs. We only have one foot for footprint total from T-Rex. So unless it was hopping, we don't really have a good idea how it was moving around. But we have trackways of other dinosaurs. If you, you can measure not that complicated, but sort of the, the stride of the dinosaur by its skeleton, match it to the footprints, and then you know how fast it's moving. Of course, footprints are made in mud, so you're not moving your fastest. The way it works out is that probably little fast meat eaters like Velociraptor could run as fast as a poodle. Maybe the ostrich-like dinosaurs could run 30 miles an hour, a little faster than us. T-Rex is not moving fast at all. So the Jeep in Jurassic Park could get away, as one scientist said, it could get away in second gear. The T-Rex would be panting and not very happy. And it wouldn't be a very exciting scene, though. No, but the whole movie, that was my problem with it. The whole movie, if you wanted an accurate dinosaur movie, you would have two hours of chewing and farting. And every once in a while, a, a meat eater chasing and missing. Because, you know, a lion misses nine times out of ten. It spends most of its life sleeping. So it could be the most boring movie ever made, but it would be accurate. So you can't really blame them for fictionalizing. So is it possible that with all these megaton dinosaurs running around and farting, that that's actually what killed them? (laughs) No, I mean, unless the odor was overbearing. No, it didn't didn't kill them, but not totally frivolous to, to think that it was a big contributor to global warming at that time. It gets overestimated in our world, but you see estimates of about 40% of methane production, which is you know, so invidious to the environment, that comes from cows. Now, farting. Dinosaur farts might have been a, a serious issue to the climate. Maybe only a minor aggravating influence because there were so many bad things going on at the end of dinosaur time that it's like, the least of my problems is everybody farting around here. An asteroid just landed, the volcanoes are going off global temperatures are changing so can i assume that your exhibits are not realistic down to the farting no no you cannot uh we have we make the only farting and peeing dinosaurs 
ever made. I, we were in a, you know, they're quite serious in museums, too much so for their own good, I think. And we were doing an exhibit in Manitoba when I realized, oh, we could just make a recording of parts and uh, this would be enormously appealing and highly realistic. So the museum didn't feel that way. I said, please, just let me try it. And this Manitoba, when the exhibit opened, it was in the local papers. But the one story on CBC nationwide was First Farting Dinosaurs, if you in Manitoba. It seems as long as we have been digging up dinosaurs, it seems like they're still discovering new species. Is there any sense of how many more species of dinosaurs that we have yet to discover are out there? It's a real tough one because think of it that we got, what's amazing is there's now the pace has accelerated hugely. So since you and I were kids hundred years ago, there are twice as many dinosaurs than ever known that now every two weeks, there's a new kind of dinosaur found. And yet there's only 35, 50 people looking. Think how many more there would be if other people were searching or we had a better way to find them. We know about as many dinosaurs now, thousand genera, sort of a next level up from species, as we do living birds or mammals. We are living one slice of time a year, you know? Dinosaurs lived 165 million years. There's probably a thousand times more kinds of dinosaurs, you know. There was an estimate recently in the papers that there were like, I don't know, what was it, 100 million T-Rexes. And I think that's a little high even for an animal that was around for a couple million years. You know, imagine to compare dinosaurs, it's not like to compare it to an elephant. It's to compare it to all mammals, for instance. So think of everything from a mouse to an elephant. Those are all these animals that are ruling the earth. So there were hundreds of millions of dinosaurs, even at one time, perhaps on the earth. Over all those years, it's a fantastic number. And the other thing is we look only in those places when I was describing to you, bones get deposited in a lowland. That's how they get covered over. What about the dinosaurs that lived in the mountains? You know, they had a nice summer home in the Alps. There were no Alps, but you get the idea. And so, you know, we're only sampling a small part of the environment in which they lived. So maybe there were dinosaurs with with four heads and the TV antennas on their heads, you know, whatever. There there was, there's a lot more variety than we yet know and a lot more numbers. How do we actually find the ones that that were in the ocean? Well, they weren't. Uh, in the ocean. So the, the guys in the ocean are giant marine reptiles, for instance. Of course, the uh, sharks were around then and now. So there's a, there's a whole panoply of animals that lived only in the ocean. Dinosaurs could swim. We know that. But they lived only on land. So we do occasionally find their fossil fossils underwater. But that's just a rare accident. We A, a U-boat sank some dinosaurs in World War One. So Maybe we'll find them someday. You wrote and studied about these animals for years. What inspired you to create Dino Dons? I love kids. I think that dinosaurs are, you know, my hidden agenda here is that we always think, how are we going to interest kids in science? Well, they are interested in science, but you killed it for them. They love dinosaurs. You can turn dinosaurs into understanding how science is done. For the rest of the animal world, evolution, you can get kids turned on for life to nature if you don't screw it up. That's what I'm really aiming at with dinosaurs. And every time I write a new book, it's to do a, to look at a different way of how we learn about them or what's a different way to categorize them or a different way to understand them. So I'm not trying to do the same thing over and over again. So I just find that what's most satisfying for me is to see them full size. And I think that creates a sense of awe or reinforces it that nothing can match. I mean, you, even in Jurassic Park, you don't get to see 
just how big these things are. For me, that's the most fun of all, whether it's a skeleton or a, or a robot. We in Chicago now, we have a 110-foot version of that same dinosaur, Argentinosaurus. 100-foot dinosaur in Philadelphia. It's just, a, I think, a, a staggering experience even to look at a recreation of an animal that was that big. So for me, it's my favorite form of expressing this stuff is an exhibition. Plus, you can go any day, see what the, the reaction is of some five-year-old. If they or their parents say, hey, this sucks, you can change it. You write a book, and I'm sure people say this sucks, but it's too late. Yeah, when people go to see these exhibits, like the one at, at the Woodland Park Zoo, what is the scale of those dinosaurs? Yeah, so they are. All, all, I never do them anything other than the way they actually were. It's one to one. But you know, they're dinosaurs as small as as Robin, and then they're dinosaurs that are four stories high. They could look in the, the top window of the four story building. So yeah, so I'm trying to present that whole range of animals. So always full size. When we see we see plenty of movies over the years, uh, like The Lost World where somebody goes to some previously uncharted territory and there are living dinosaurs. What's the likelihood that somewhere on Earth there are actual living dinosaurs today? You know that cartoon? I think, it was, I think a guy is asking a girl out on a date. She says, never. How about, how does never work for you? Never will there be a, a dinosaur alive again. They had, they did their thing they're long gone you can't recreate them i think you could get something that looked very much like a dinosaur if you spend a ridiculous amount of money but you'd be faking it you'd be taking elements of living animals not frogs like in jurassic park but birds reverse engineering till you got something that looked more like a dinosaur why would you want to do that if you had a live dinosaur now you'd sneeze on him and he would die or he would try and eat a plant and they've all developed alkaloids since then. There are a lot more flowering plants and a lot more poisons in them. So they would drop dead from that. So we'd be bringing them back just to watch them die. So we, we don't have to worry or we don't have to hope that uh, Jurassic Park's ever going to become a reality unless they're with your, your di- robotic dinosaurs. That's right. You want Jurassic Park, you have to go to my exhibit. That's the only way. What do you want people to know about Dinosaurs or Dino Don uh, or Dino Don's, the company, that I haven't asked? Oh, my gosh. Yes. So we have a website, two websites, one for fun for kids, where every month we hide a dinosaur, a real-sized robot or sculpture of a dinosaur. And if you answer the clues, which are nearly impossible, you will win it. And annoyingly, some guy already did. Like, I thought I made them impossible, and he figured it out, so we're going to have to give this away right away. I wanted to milk it for a, for a month or so, but it's got a lot of fun stuff for kids. And then Dino Don Inc. is the where our exhibits are all over the country, so that people can go see them. And you can buy a dinosaur yourself, and there are people with sugar enough, enough to buy a dinosaur. So since I was on Shark Tank a couple of weeks ago, and people found out about this, we already sold three dinosaurs, one to a a brachiosaurus to put on a building to some guy in Seattle, a uh, mammoth to go in front of some woman's construction company in Texas, and a baby dinosaur for a day camp in New York. So at some point, you're going to need a dinosaur in your life. Don, thank you so much for being here. And, and I hope you will come back sometime to talk about your love of Genghis Khan. 
not the most lovable guy in history. Well, that's because you don't know him. Uh, yeah, I'll <laughs> set you straight anytime. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. Music.